Ernest, what's up? Y'all know I'm big on doing your research, sharing your research, and giving credit to where you found the research. But I always get asked the same question. Where do I start with the research? And the answer is easy. It's our sponsor, Yahoo Finance. Whether I'm tracking the daily movement of my favorite companies, doing technical analysis with their easy-to-use charting platform, or checking balance sheets, Yahoo Finance makes something very complex simplified. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or you're looking for extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. You could actually securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including your 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors. And it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You heard me, yahoofinance.com. Don't wait, don't hesitate. I use it. You should go over there and start using it now. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. So can you talk about that as far as your backstory into coming into the health field and what made you transition your family's trajectory from being a healthcare worker to being a healthcare entrepreneur? Actually, it, the trajectory was started with, with my mom. She, wait, she was the first one to make the pivot into doing something entrepreneurial in, in healthcare. She started a, a nurse staffing firm or what they call like nursing agencies. So I was helping her out with that. And that's what got me like that early exposure to, you know, being entrepreneurial in healthcare. My mind was still on, okay, I, I got to get going to a healthcare profession. They were thinking that like, all of our kids were going to become doctors. My brother is a physician. Um, and my, another one of my brothers is a, is a MRI technologist as well. So a lot of us went straight into healthcare because that's what was drilled into our heads. But as I was going through school, I started to focus more and more on the business side of things, eventually opening up uh, an expansion of the healthcare company in Long Island. And I was using school and using that experience to, to kind of build and improve the business. She was working at a nursing home and they were using what they'd call agency nurses. And she was like, well, why don't I just start why don't I just start an agency and get my friends from other hospitals to work for me and be one of your providers. And that's where that company uh, started. But my mom has like zero computer skills. So when it was time to create the documents, it was me making the documents. When it was time to create spreadsheets, to do the invoicing, to manage QuickBooks, anything that was on a computer was me, right? Because I was the kind of computer geek of my household. So it's like, oh, Carl, I need this. Can you know how to make this? Can you get, get it out of the computer? So it was always me and my mom working on that side of the business. Um, so when I went to college, I ended up expanding the business into Long Island. And every lesson that, <laughs> that I took that I could kind of like learn from to, to bring that knowledge back to the business, I did. And I ended up studying... Uh, health technology and management with a concentration in radiology, uh, radiological studies. And that was to become an x-ray tech and a CAT scan technologist and an MRI technologist. And I chose that path because I wanted to have flexibility in when I worked, right? Because there's certain positions in healthcare that are 24 seven 
And there's some of them that are only like nine to five. And I didn't want to choose a career path within healthcare that would narrow me down to work in nine to five because I knew I needed to have the nine to five, the business hours free to expand on my business. So that was kind of the reason why I chose x-ray because it's, you know, their x-ray techs are working all shifts. They're doing CAT scan at night or they could flex into MRI. So I thought that that was going to be the best fit for me. And plus I knew that I would have work as well. And I, I never, you know, and this is a, a message to anybody who's, who's thinking about going the entrepreneurial route. I never like to not have a guaranteed income from somewhere. And I felt like if I'm, if I can work nights and I can work weekends and use all of my free time during the day to, to focus on the business, then I'm going to do that, but I'm never going to sacrifice the potential to earn. And that's one of the things that is pretty special about, about healthcare is because, you know, a nurse can work, you know, three, three days a week, three 13 hour shifts or three 12 hour shifts, be full time and then have four days a week, you know, on a nurse's alley at that, four days a week to focus on whatever else it is that, that she wants to focus on. Whatever else they want to do in life. So it's like you can be a real estate entrepreneur. You can work another job if you want. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty flexible hours. So let me ask you this. As far as the um, healthcare industry, it's something that pretty much is recession proof. Um, there's a shortage. It's like the only, especially nurses, there's the only profession, I think, that is extremely on demand right now mm -hmm. where everybody else is is firing people and it's like they can't find enough nurses especially where we're at in new york um so as far as that is concerned right for an entrepreneur because we don't get in the business model of it um how did you like what was the steps for you to start your your home um is it i don't, I don't want to misquote it. it's a home nursing service home long-term nursing service licensed home care service agency and in New York, they call them Lixas and Chas. There's two types, actually. But it actually, it started first as a staffing firm, which is very simple. To start a staffing firm, you just need to incorporate yourself. You need to have a contract that says that you're going to be providing, you know, uh, contracted services. A rate sheet that says how much you're charging. And you're in business. Literally, for less than $1,000, you can start a, a, a nursing agency. Right. Because and it's it's actually mislabeled as a nursing agency because you're, you're not you're not taking a percentage of the wages of that employee. So like in New York City, you could get a license to be an agency through uh, consumer affairs. So and that's a, a very easy process. But that's because you're charging a fee to the person that you that you're getting the job for. Right. A staffing firm is different because those people work for your company. And you're assigning them to work in a hospital, in a nursing home or something like that. And you're charging the hospital a fee, taking your cut and then paying your employee. So it's not by definition an agency, but they just refer to them as agency nurses because that's what the, the terminology is. Where did the idea for the staffing agency come, right? So you're doing x-rays, you deviated from the plan of being a doctor. Um, was it from the influx of people coming into the hospital and seeing that there was a shortage? Where did the influence come from? It came from my mom. Um, she just saw uh, an opportunity for a money grab. And she was like, well, if I, I know several nurses myself, and I'm a nurse, so if I could start this, then I could just pull my friends together and we could provide services to these you know, understaffed hospitals and nursing homes. So that's where the idea came from. I, I got to give, give her that. But being exposed to that, at 14 years old made and seeing what the numbers were made it like, okay, this is a no brainer for me to, to kind of expand on that. But while we were in the, the staffing firm business, she also was like, well, since we're doing well here, there's another side to this business, which is home healthcare. And I see those companies and she worked, she would work. And that's my, my, my mom is, is, I guess, pretty genius. She would work for them to kind of learn how they maneuver and get exposed to like where they get their contracts from, how, where, what's the money flow. And then she was like, all right, let's look into getting a license. So while we were in high school, we were working with a license. The license didn't hit until 2001, but the staffing firm business was going well. I had expanded into Long Island. We didn't do anything with the nursing agency. I mean, with the home healthcare agency, it was just sitting there dormant. But something cool happened, which is New York state stopped issuing the licenses, right? They capped out the licenses. 
So we started getting phone calls to buy our license. And the phone call first was $50,000, then it was $100,000, then it was $250,000, then it was $400,000. And we thought about selling it just to fuel the, the second firm, but it was like, wait, if we're getting offered four hundred k for this license to operate, there's money here. So what was, what was the reason that New York State decided to stop issuing the oh, license? same reason why they're trying to scale back the agencies now. It's just too much oversight, right? So there's more than 2,000 agencies in New York, right? Every three years, we get surveyed by the state, and they have to send three nurses to your agency to review your medical records. So to do that to 2,000 agencies, you need a lot of you know, personnel. So it gets out of control every now and then where it's just too many people to monitor. So they're, they're actually trying to force a consolidation within the industry, shrinking the number of licenses that are out there so it's easier for them to, to, to maintain oversight. So, all right. So in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, you have the, the, the company where it's like a middleman in, in a sense. Staffing is actually really big. We haven't even talked about staffing on this podcast before. But so you recruit, you recruit people um for jobs pretty much and staffing you can do any you can do staffing in any type of it staffing nursing staffing stuff like that and then you you charge the hospital and they pay you and then you pay the difference how lucrative can that like is there what's the profit margins on them it could be as much as 50 percent because it depends on what the hospital is willing to pay in home care the profit margin is about 11 to 13 percent because it's getting Medicaid dollars and and the margins are small there. Just like the 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 margin for a hospital is only eight percent, right? Hospitals are functioning on eight percent margin, but with staffing itself, it could be as high as fifty because it's it's how desperate are they for staff and what are they willing to pay? But usually, you're charging like a thirty percent markup over what you're paying your staff. That's kind of so fifty percent. The best case scenario, if they give you two hundred, you give the employee a hundred, and you take and you take it a hundred. Yeah, clean. If 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 that's what they negotiated, right? So with the nursing cot, it's usually about thirty percent over because the hospital and the nursing facility is thinking, well, what do we pay our, our nurses? What about matching their payroll taxes, right? That's another expense. Their workers' comp and their healthcare expenses plus PTO. So when you're trying to, you, you want to come in as close to their price or their overtime price as possible. Because they're either going to mandate their staff to work overtime or they're going to use an agency. And if you come in for like a dollar or two less than what that figure is, it's now a savings to that facility. And they'll be interested. So you could charge like 30 to 50% above because if it's at 50%, you know you're hitting the time and a half now. Hmm. Right? And they're still going to, they still may be short. So they still may go with you even though it's equal to their time and a half number. And that doesn't include the workers' comp and taxes that they're going to have to pay as the employer. So at four hundred thousand the offer for the license, did you guys decide to sell? Or you decide, you know what, we got something great here. Let's hold on to it. Let's hold on to it, and and at the same time, the the market crashed. Mm. So in the staffing business, right, you have a contract that says, all right, you're going to pay me forty five dollars an hour for for an LPN nurse, and I'm going to pay them, and we're going to provide the service, but what ends up happening is that you have the terms that may be every 30 days, every 60, every 90. So you're front running the payroll until you get reimbursed on your invoice, right? You're not getting paid weekly from the nursing facility. They don't pay out weekly. So right before the market crashed, we were growing pretty aggressively and we had line of credits to float that money. So just like what's happening right now in this crash, the banks pull back. On, on those line of credits. So we couldn't even provide as much services anymore. So it's like, well, what are we gonna do? Because now we, we can only provide like 30% of our services. And that's why we were even flirting with the idea of selling. Because it's like, if we sold this for 400K, that helps us you know, have more buffer money. But, was, but then we thought like, well, the home health aides get paid less than nurses. So let's just start spooling up that side of the business, making you know, a smaller spread, but, we can grow this beyond and, and people are thinking about paying you know almost half a million dollars for the license there's got to be some money here and that's where that pivot took place is, is that true for just for new york state or was that something that was happening throughout the country where licenses were being seized 
Oh, no, no, no. That's that's New York State. Like right now in Florida, where, where I am and expanding on, on my new venture, um, there isn't a moratorium on licenses. I'm applying for a license right now. Some states, I think Michigan doesn't even have a license to operate. You could just start a home care agency without any oversight, which is kind of nuts to me because New York is heavily regulated. California, of course, heavily regulated. Um, so, you know, short answer is that it depends on your state. So a friend of mine in Ohio, he has a, um, a health clinic and um, he was kind of explaining it to me. And it was it was crazy because he was saying, like, with the healthcare industry, the common mistake that people make is that they think that they actually have to be in the field to actually be, um, you know, an entrepreneur and like open a, a type of business. But you don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be a licensed doctor to have these type of business, right? Like that you have, like you're not a licensed doctor, right? No, I'm not a licensed doctor, but in most states, you have to have a licensed person, like either a nurse or a physician on your founding team. If you're gonna, if you're gonna do the, a licensed home care agency, but as a staffing firm, you could turn around and start one tomorrow. So your mom was, your mom filled that role, right? She was the nurse. So that's, that's how it worked. So, you know, if you're thinking about getting into this business, like I get inquiries all the time on, on, on my channel where it's like, how do I start? How do I start? So I started showing them step-by-step, this is how you do it. So step one, if you're going to go and become a home care agency, you got to just research your department of health website and find out, are they issuing licenses? What is the application process? And what are the rules and regulations, right? Because those regulations are going to dictate what your policies are and how your policies need to be drafted. And you're going to need to develop your policies when you're applying. It's actually pretty a pretty grueling process because you're, you're doing like, man, like 400 pages of policies, you, your forms that you're going to be using to do your assessments. It's pretty intense. But you could also hire a consultant to help you with that. Like right now in Florida, since... I'm in a much better financial position than when we started <laughs> the home care agency before. Um, I'm just paying a consultant to, to handle the entire application process and working on building my team while, while they're doing that piece rather than physically typing. But from the staffing firm perspective, you just need a, you can get like a boilerplate, generic staffing firm contract, pull that up on Google, um, determine what area you're going to focus on, if it's going to be healthcare or nursing, and then decide what your rates are going to be. Make sure you're, you're cushioning in at least 30% spread because your, your uh, payroll taxes are going to you know, cost you close to like 10%. And then your workers' comp is going to be around 6 to 7%. So then you're only going to be left with like 20. So at least you charge a 30% markup if you're going to do that. But the process... You know, once you get licensed, it's all about what relationships you, you build and executing on, on your marketing strategy so that you're finding those, those patients. But on the staffing firm side, the process is call the nursing home, call the hospital, speak with either the administrator or the director of nursing and say, I am a staffing firm. I'm looking to provide services. Do you need coverage? Best time? summertime why because people are going on vacation they're going to be short right so that's when people are going to be desperate and they'll say hey you know what um sure you know send us over your send us over your contract and we'll have it reviewed the first contract that i got when i expanded in long island took me about maybe two weeks of phone calls i just literally downloaded nassau county nursing homes and i just picked up the phone 20 Cold. years old Cold. Cold yeah. calling, cold calling. You created the contracts yourself or you sat down with a lawyer? How, how did that process work? Oh, she, she took, she, my mom took a copy of the contract that her nursing home is using and I just retyped it. All right. Well, in the next segment, we want to talk more about the business and also about the acquisition that you guys, um, I know you were saying off camera that somebody had offered you some money and you looked at that and because we like to talk about stories like that on EYL because these are things that the general public does does not know and isn't privy to. So, um, yeah, we're going to talk some more in depth about the healthcare field in the next segment. All right. So um, in this in this segment, we're going we're going to talk some more about some actionable items. Um, this is what everybody loves EYL for. So we, you have two different businesses with the staffing firm and the nursing. But first, I want to talk about staffing. So for people, because you said that's that's probably like the more practical thing that uh, 
really anybody can can do as a staffing firm. And like I said, it's, staffing firms are big on a variety of different levels, not just the medical, all over. Staffing firms are extremely big. And pretty much it's just bridging a gap where somebody needs work and their employees that are skilled to work, but they don't, they got to come together. So the staffing firm's job is to find the qualified employees and match them with good employers. So what what are some steps if somebody wants to start their own staffing firm? I'm going to try to break it down as simple as possible. If you're going to be starting a staffing firm, the first thing that you're going to need to do is get your hands on just a basic staffing contract. Okay. Get a contract, review that contract. And part of that contract is going to have a fee schedule, right? This is what you're charging for the positions, right? So if you're starting with nursing, start with a fee schedule for RNs, a fee schedule for LPNs, which are licensed practical nurses, and then for nurse aides, because that those are the most utilized workers in a nursing home or in a hospital, right? So that's that's one thing that you want to have. But you're going to do your market research next to know what is a nurse commanding as far as salary, what is the LPN commanding as far as salary, and the nurse aide, right? So that you know what you're supposed to be paying out. Specific to and each then, state that you're in? Specific to, specific to the state that you're in? Yeah, specific to your region. Okay. Right? Even in New York, you know, right. New York City is going to charge higher rates than Buffalo. Exactly. Right? So you have to just research your local market just to know what does it, you know, how much are you going to be paying? Because that's going to dictate how much are you going to charge because you obviously need to cover that. You're going to need to cover payroll. You're going to need to cover workers' comp. And then you're going to need your profit margin, right? So I advise that whatever the local rates are, charge a minimum of 30% more or, you know, as much as double because it depends on, once again, the need of that position. So once you have your contract set, the next thing that you should do is obviously incorporate yourself, right? Either go the LLC route or the corporation route. Um, just so that you have an entity and some sort of barrier between you and, and, and liability, right? That's the purpose and also the tax benefit. So make sure you go out there and cover yourself. You could do that on LegalZoom. I use a service called Blumberg Excelsior. I'll send you guys the link. You know, I like working with them. They're quick and they'll set up your corporation within a day or two. They'll even apply for your tax ID number, all the things that you need to be, you know, recognized as a business, right? And that cost in New York, it's going to be anywhere from like 300 if you're doing a corporation to like almost 2000 if you're doing an LLC because of the, the publication fee that's associated with that. Because LLCs have to you know, publish that they're coming into existence. So once you have your contract and you have your entity set up and you have you know, open up a bank account in your entity's name, the next thing that you should do is probably hire a few people, right? Do get your application. You can pull up any generic application online, but you're going to need to get an application so you can actually onboard and have a pool of providers, nurses, nurse aides, LPNs, whatever you're going to be hiring. And, you know, once you do get a hit, you're going to be able to staff. You don't want, you don't want to get into contract to provide staff and you got no staff, right? right. So it, I think if you're a healthcare professional, it, it might make the most sense to staff yourself be one of the people that gets dispatched. So at least you know that you could fill in certain gaps if you get that immediate call that you could work that shift yourself. How many people How many people are you putting on the team to start? Are we doing like two or three, including yourself? So you got a four person team? In a, if you're starting a, a, a staffing firm? Yeah. I would, at least three in each position that you're, that you're marketing. So right. at least you have you know some depth to your, to your staff. So we had RN, LPN, and then healthy. So that would be nine people? Got you. So how do, how do you um because like there's a shortage of of nurses right now in New York and um there's like they're like begging nurses to come from all over the country right so this is like a perfect if somebody had a staffing agency for nurses right now it'd be perfect but like how do you find the the candidates like I'm and sure attract talent okay so first you're gonna just public you're gonna post on whatever you can Indeed LinkedIn. Facebook jobs, wherever, Craigslist, just post that you're hiring. And the thing is, people, nurses, I know, most nurses I know are working two jobs, right? They're usually the top earner in their household, especially in our community. 
they're working two jobs, sometimes three jobs. So they're always looking for jobs, right? Because one, they, their jobs exist and they're always looking. But if you dangle a carrot like higher rates than what they're normally getting paid, then that also attracts them. So let's just say the average was 30, but you're paying 33. Then nurses who are working for some other agency or at, they'll give up their part-time job and work with you for a little more money. So you're making a smaller spread, but you're attracting the talent that way. What what is um what makes a, a candidate qualify? What are what are the things they need? Um, I'm assuming experience, or maybe not in this type of crisis. Even experience, uh, license. They they need to have most most people in healthcare need to be licensed, right? So RNs are licensed, LPNs are licensed, nurse aides have a certificate, home health aides have a certificate. So they obviously need to be meet whatever the guidelines are for the state. They also need to have uh, an up-to-date physical, which shows that they're immune to measles, mumps, rubella, rubiola, chickenpox, varicella, that they also are TB negative, so they can't have active tuberculosis, mm-hmm. um, and that they're what's called you know, safe and fit to work. Okay, So that physical needs it's done annually. All healthcare workers working in direct contact with patients have to have an annual physical. So their physical needs to be up to date. But every nurse and everybody in the, in the field knows that. So either they're getting the physicals done at the job and they can get their physicals from their job or they just get their physical from their doctor. But once they have that, they have the application, they filled out their W-2 forms or the 1099 forms if they're, uh, or W-9s if they're gonna be 1099 um, and they have their medical clearance and they have, you have a copy of your license, that's what you would consider a profile for that, for that nurse. Of course, their resume helps, but most of the time, they're not even asking for the resumes because they're, they're so behind. It's just like, does this person have at least one year's experience? Typically, is what they're looking for. So you would also look for that. But sometimes you might have a new nurse who has maybe eight years' experience as a nurse aide that understands how things move in a nursing facility that they'll be willing to to take as well sometimes they orient them at the facility it really it's really case by case but at minimum physical licensure certificate and uh identification and you know eligibility work in the united states are, are there and terms after you you find a candidate that they have to stay with with the company for six to twelve months or does that exist in, in this in the staffing agency? If you if you have that agreement with the worker, and usually within the contract, you have like a provision that they can hire that person after one year if they pay you X percentage of that person's salary. If not, they can't hire that person. So it's also a way for them to kind of vet and recruit talent to a certain extent. So in in that in that sense, right? Let's say that they made a hundred thousand. If they want to hire them after the year, you take a percentage of that. So you like maybe yep. I get five percent. Fifteen. So, okay. Fifteen to twenty. So that's fifteen fifteen thousand. If we're making a hundred. Yep. Okay, got you. Okay. <clears throat> so the staffing. How lucrative is staffing? We pivoted to to home care. We're doing about a million a year in revenue, and like the net margin was about twenty percent. So you're seeing 200 grand profits. It's enough to, to, to earn on. It wasn't, it wasn't what it, what it was for, for like how it is for home care. Um, but we never got to the point, like as far as size that we did with the home care agency. So, um, so pivoting to pivoting towards home care. So home yeah. care is, is more, is way more lucrative in your opinion. Uh, no, they're, they're, I think, I think they're equally lucrative. Um, it's just that the, the funnel is different and, and there's a, a larger barrier to entry. So, you know, there's with that, of course, there's, there's money, right? There's fewer of you, there's fewer providers and there's still a need. So we were able to scale that aggressively because, you know, a home health aide only needs to train for 80 hours, right? To get a certificate. And that means that there's, there's a lot of them out there. So we're able to scale up, the number of people that we have faster than a bunch of a bunch of nurses to get 300 400 nurses is a lot harder to do than to get 300 or 400 home health aides so to be a home health aide to be a home health aide what what do you have to do to become become a home health aide it's an 80 hour course so so it's you know body mechanics how do you care for a patient you know 
making sure that the water isn't too hot so you're not burning a patient when you're giving them a bath. Safe technique at home. Safe technique at any, home. Any, anybody can do that? As long as it's illegal to work in the United States, yep. So that's, a, that's actually, when we talk about the business side, but that's actually a job opportunity, I guess, as well for people that might need, need work, right? Yep. And in New York, they're they're making anywhere between $15 and $20 an hour. Yeah, and the, so, and the, the qualifications are uh, like two what? Two-week training program. That's it. Two-week training program. And then also physically. Background physical. check. Background check. So, all right. So you guys scaled that up pretty, pretty aggressively. And then you were saying that um, you got a, a offer to sell the company. So right now we're doing like for 2019, we did about uh, just under $12 million in annual rev. And I got a mailer, right? From somebody who was like, are you looking to sell? So I was like, oh, let me, let me, let me entertain this and see what numbers are throwing around. Right. So it was actually an agent who, who a mergers and acquisitions agent who brokers businesses. So he sat with me and he was like, we could get you 50% of your annual revenue. And I was like, all right, so talking about, you know, between five and $6 million sale based on where we were at that year. And I was like, all right, cool. So they brought in uh, a, I'm not sure if I, I got to see the terms and conditions of the contract, so I'm not going to say their name, but they brought in a, a publicly traded uh, home care agency that was acquiring agencies like mine, right? And they reviewed our case mix and how much money we were making, and they made an offer that was consistent with, with that. So it's like, okay, I was my trader background, I started looking up the financials of that company and looking at how they were organized, and I saw that they were trading at, uh, at 60 times earnings. Right, they had a they had a sixty p, and I then looked at how many cases they have, and they have like thirty thousand lives under management in the country, and I was like, all right, well, we have three hundred patients, so we would just need to get, you know, a hundred times larger, right? And what would that take, and how could we do that? And I was like, well, they're trying to buy us at like five times earnings, but they're trading at sixty. This is a this is a no brainer. They brought in another company as well, not 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 a public traded company, another another suitor, and they're like, yeah. I was like, what is your strategy here? What's what's the what's the game plan? The guy was like, we've already taken another uh, we've already taken another company public. All we do is aggregate companies and go public. That's that's our model, right? It's like we've done it in fashion, and now we're doing it in healthcare. So they were trying to offer me four times earnings. And I'm, I know that the publicly traded company is trading at 60. So it's just a matter of getting financing and going out there and gobbling up smaller and mid-sized agencies so that you get the numbers to go public. And then you're going you're gonna to make 12x return on what you just bought. Because all you're doing is buying functional agencies, putting them under one umbrella, stripping back duplicated jobs. Like you don't need a bunch of CFOs. You have one CFO in your company, right? So they just aggregate and go public. And I was like, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't sell, right? Maybe this is not the direction to go in. Maybe the direction to go in is emulate that model and, and start thinking about, you know, expanding the business into different markets and expanding the business in a way that, you know, we're on a trajectory to go public. And that's what I'm doing now with Aidbook. So you, you turned down $6 million in, to scale your own business? Yeah. So, so, what, so, so all right. So Aidbook, what, is, what does that include as far as your new? So you said that okay, once you so, got that idea. Yeah. Our, our mission at, at Aidbook is really to just streamline the discharge planning process. Because hospitals, hospitals are under pressure to discharge patients quickly and make sure those patients are readmitted. But what happens when somebody has pneumonia, goes home, doesn't pick up their medication, they don't know how to take their medication, they're not following a good diet, they regress, they relapse, they end up back in nursing facility. When that happens, the hospital gets penalized. 
So our mission is to streamline that process so that hospitals are discharging using our software solutions, right? Discharging to home care so that immediately we're picking up that patient, servicing them, making sure that someone is there to pick up their medication, take care of them, making sure they're not falling at home, making sure they're not regressing so they don't trigger back into the hospital and trigger that penalty. And by doing that, we're funneling ourselves with a lot of new referrals. You said the hospital- is solving that hospital's problem. The hospital gets penalized? There's like a fee or a fine that the hospital gets? It's not a fee or a fine. They will subtract up to 3% of their top line revenue for penalties on the following year. So let's just say the hospital is making 100 million, right? Mm -hmm. The hospital margin, 8%, right? So they only make an $8 million profit. Medicare will penalize them 3% on revenue and reimbursement, right? But their operation costs are still going to cost them that $92 million. So from going from $100 million to 97 and having a, an underlying $92 million you know, cost to provide services, they're only making $5 million. That's, that's almost 40% loss in their bottom line if they get penalized. How, how many patients would it, would it take for like a hospital to get penalized for something like that to kick in? It, it's, it's like ratios. So it depends on how many beds they have, how many, what, what disease processes, because they're targeting six disease processes, pneumonia, uh, heart failure, cabbage, which is um, bypass surgery, complete joint replacement surgeries. So those are the ones that are like the, the high risk because they're expensive to take care of. And it's, you know, you, the, the mentality of the government is we, we're paying you to fix them, fix them. You get what I'm saying? Like fix them, make sure that they're healthy. But at the same time, we're only paying you for four days for this hospital stay because that's the national average. So what is the, what is the hospital doing? They need to get them out or is they losing money and they need to ensure that they don't come back. So our company is focusing on that transitional care and converting it into long-term care for those who need it. Yeah, you're helping making sure they don't come back. We help them to make sure they don't come back and saving their revenue. Gotcha. And so what's the business model? Because you said like eventually you want to take this public, right? So um, how is this different from Avalanche? And like, what do, you, what do you see? How did you replicate what you saw the larger company do to you? Um, and how are you going to implement that and like really scaling Aidbrook? Is it to acquire other small size companies and bring them under the umbrella of Aidbrook or? Okay. So for me, what I, cause I've been trying to push my partners in the home care company in Avalanche to, to, to think about things on a, on a larger level. Always. That's always been the case, right? I've always wanted to push the business further. And what I realized is that they were going into business for the freedom that, you know, owning your own business allows, right? You can take vacation when you want, do what you want. And they, they were comfortable with what we're making there, right? So they weren't looking to push. They, they, they do want growth. They do want to make more money, but they're not willing to adjust their habits and mindset to, to run multiple locations, to expand into different states. They're not they're not there. So the first thing that I'm doing with Aidbook is assembling a team that has industry knowledge and in working in public companies. So what I'm doing at Aidbook is focusing on talent that has worked in publicly traded companies and just building our infrastructure with that mindset. So not only are we going to be using technology as and solving that problem for the hospitals to, to be a driver of growth in our business, but we will entertain you know acquisitions as well because as we get close it, it makes more sense to so let me let me put it this way i believe that our software and aligning ourselves with the hospitals will allow us to grow by you know 100 patients per month right if i'm growing by by 100 patients per month in one city then I need to set up in another city and grow an agency by 100 patients a month by employing the same software, the same marketing team to do that, right? So if I'm going into a new state, rather than go through this lengthy you know, licensing process, which for Florida is going to take me uh, four months to have the license and then another six months to get Medicare approval, 
what I could do when I'm going into a new state and and better capitalized, I could just start buying smaller mid-sized companies at five times earnings and just point our marketing engine to them and scale them up to 2,000, 3,000 patients per, per an agency per state. Once I get to like 12,000, 15,000 lives in the management, I have something that I can take to the public market or once again, step to a larger you know, conglomerate and say, look, we're growing at 1,000 patients per month. We don't see an end in our funnel. You're growing by acquiring companies, right? At five times earnings. If you just buy our system, that's already functional and, and fully aligned with, with the hospitals, then you're gonna grow at this rate in, in perpetuity, right? So why, why wouldn't you wanna buy this? And at the same time, I'll still be on the track to take the company public. So for me, the most important thing is an initial team that has that experience. So I've already coached some talent from Tupperware, and now I poached one person from, from uh, Emory, the hospital system in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And these are people who are interested in being involved in a startup with this, with this trajectory in mind that within five to seven years, we're gonna exit and we're gonna exit big. And we need to function this way. And just replicating systems with that, that you would come to find in a publicly traded company. So you'll see that most publicly traded companies are, you know, will have one of the major accounting firms doing, doing their accounting or at least doing their audits, like PwC, for instance. So from, from day one, our accounting structure has to be on point, right? Because that, that happens, if you, if you notice, like when you're looking at like startups that are trying to go public, they, some of them get jammed up because of accounting, you know, issues. It's because they didn't have their structure right. And now they got to get, they got to spend two or three years getting their financial straight to then take the company public. So by building from, from the very beginning with the mindset of this is, this is how accounting is done in publicly traded companies. This is how much money is allocated to marketing spend versus revenue. Having all those details and people who are familiar with those details, being on your team from the beginning is, is what you need. And also you're going to need money to support that. A lot of, one of the mistakes that we make as, you know, as a community is we'll start a business with too little money, with our friends, with our family, and they're not skilled to take it to a certain point. And, and then we don't even have the discussion of what is the vision for the company? Where are we trying to go? What are we trying to do? How are we trying to get there? Are our visions aligned? Are our values aligned? And th those things you need to set, you need to set them from the beginning. If you don't, you're, you're, you're going to be building a company on a shaky foundation, or you're going to build a company that, you know, at a certain point, it can't grow anymore because your, your, your foundation isn't set. Yeah, that's big. I, um, well, obviously I've heard of assets under management. I never heard of lives under management before, but, um, uh, makes sense if you're in the medical field, um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, like you said, I mean, you just outlined your vision. And I think that that's important for entrepreneurs, whether it's big, small, middle, whatever. Um, you have to have a vision. And it's like you already kind of have an idea in your mind. Nothing ever goes according to plan, but at least you have a roadmap of where you want your company to go. And that's more than half the battle right there. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are just winging it, winking up and just trying to figure it out day to day. Like they're literally living day to day. And times like this. It just really exposes that, and now you're in a financial crisis because you never really had a business plan. You just had, you know, figure it out mentality as you go, and that can only take you so far. Correct. It's it's a and the thing I'm lucky, really I'm lucky. Like just like 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 uh, like uh, uh, the the VC dude that was just on from Black Star Fund. Yeah, Kwame. Yeah, shout out to Kwame yeah. and Cool. Yeah, Kwame. He, when I was watching that, I was like, this is like my story, right? Because his father's a physician. He's helping out at the office. He's learning and he's watching. And like, like having that, that information coming into your mind from that young, you start to, just like you say, I, I think you say something, if you start looking at a yellow car, you start to notice more yellow cars, right? So if I already am looking at, okay, my mom's staffing business and I'm, now I'm in the staffing business myself, 
you start, and I'm working in hospital still, you start having your eyes open to where's the money moving? How's it moving? So certain things that will go over your head don't go over your head anymore. Immediately ring. So it's, it's the same thing. But what I see with a lot of people is that they, either, they don't have much you know, entrepreneurial experience. They get it later in life and they start just winging it. The best thing that you could do is, you know, hit what one do like a, a business, a business template or a business model, right? Just look, just Google business model and YouTube a, a business model video. It walks you through how you should be thinking about your business. The very first thing is what is your value proposition? What are you offering? What problem are you fixing? Or what need are you addressing? What is what is that in your company, right? So in, at AidBook, what is our value proposition? We're dealing with this, this problem that hospitals have of patients being readmitted. And that's the problem that we're trying to solve. And we're gonna monetize that by solving that problem and by being the service provider to those patients. Carl, how many, right. how many states are you operating in right now? Right now, well, New York. And yeah. then with eight buckets, it's going to be Florida. Florida. And I, when I'm, I'm thinking Florida, and I'm thinking like when you said you want to grow your your uh, clients by a hundred per or a thousand per year, you're in a state with the largest population, well, the oldest population in the country. Was that done intentionally? Uh, actually, not really, um, because Florida, like in New York, we're we're dealing mostly with Medicaid managed long term care. Right. As the payer, Florida has a cap on how many waivers they, they, they put out. Right. It's a it's a red state mostly. So they put out, you know, they do less spending. So a lot of the people here are, are self-paid. But I liked Florida because, you know, I'm going to be living part time in Columbia. So it's a good midpoint between Columbia and New York. So it's and it has international airports. The weather is good. So that's why I chose I chose Florida, but I'm going to be expanding into every state that has, you know, a thriving uh, home care community, like home care infrastructure. So Florida, North Carolina, uh, Texas, Atlanta or Georgia, um, um, Pennsylvania, California. So those are states that I would be willing to, to, to enter because I know that the, the home care infrastructure is good there. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. So in the last segment, we're going to talk about your software system. That's actually something you got a lot going on. We're going to talk about, on your, time, software. On time. Talk about your software system, and then we're going to bring it home with everything that you got going on now. So, yeah. All right. So we're going to talk about your software system. But before, one one quick question about the um, your company. So how do you raise money? Because, I, I, um, you know, it's probably a lot as far as the expenses to, to run um, these type of organizations. Because you say you even have to pay up front, then you get reimbursed on the back end. So... Um, finance yeah. finances is always the biggest hurdle for any business for the most part. So how yeah. do you, how do you raise money? How do you have money coming in on a consistent basis to to float your your operations? So in looking at the staffing business, that started with five thousand dollars, five k, and obviously that's undercapitalized, right? Because what ended up happening is that all right, we're we're limited to how much services we can provide. Some people were waiting a month to get paid because we were getting paid on a monthly basis. So first was like the most traditional people, you go to a bank, you apply for a line of credit, right? But that's only gonna be if you have business history, right? And that they feel that you're credit worthy. But with time, those lines of credit, it was tapping 401ks, it was tapping friends and family. And that's usually where most people start with either basic credit cards or, or getting money from the bank, right? But they're not lending much and it's not enough to really turbocharge your company. It wasn't until I was trading stocks and building you know, a tech company that I started to understand that starting with friends and family money is cool it's fine it's you know it could get you started starting with little credit cards and bank money is enough to get you started but if you're really gonna try to expand your business you're going to have to raise money from from institutional investors right from vc firms from angel investors and their entire business model is to identify solid companies 
pump money in with the intention solely to scale them, right? You're, that That's a little different than starting uh, from scratch, right? Because if sometimes, all right, so in the world, in the, in the startup world, right? And it's not just tech startups because any, obviously any industry could be a startup, but in the startup world, your first objective is to develop an MVP, right? Your, your minimally viable product. And that's the first thing that you need to finance, right? Prove that you have a product or service that the market is in demand for, prove that you can monetize it. That's the first thing that you should raise money for. And if you're gonna do it with your credit cards and with friends and family money, that's the time because you don't, you don't necessarily have to go out there and, and form a business. You just have to prove that you have a product or service that people are willing to pay for. Once you can prove that with this product or service, it costs you know, $10,000 a month to operate, but it generates $50,000 of, uh, of money, like annual profits. Once you can prove that relationship, that money in doing this thing produces money out at a multiple larger than money in, you can take that 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 little company to market and start raising money from angel investors and venture capitalists. And there's going to be different there's going to be different levels of them, right? There's going to be there's going to be like Brooklyn what is it Brooklyn Bread Ventures, right? Uh, Charlie Charlie O'Donnell is the is the guy who heads that fund. He likes to deal with companies that are at that seed level, that first investment, usually five hundred thousand to a million. In, in capital. Then there's like the series A, series B, and, and so on. And some so there's some VC firms that only get in at that pre like like $200 million minimum. Like we don't look at any company that doesn't require $200 million or more. Right. So it's all about what where we're trying to go. But the first, the first that seed funding of that that anywhere from half a million dollars to like one, 1.5, there's there's VC firms that specialize in just that. Then there's VC firms that specialize in, in the different sectors. Some are healthcare focused, some are technology focused, some are industry agnostic. It, it really depends. But you need to have some sort of traction, some sort of proof that your business is growing. And I learned that by, by doing my tech startup because I was like, all right, I know I'm going to need money to fuel this thing. And in going to like tech startup meetups, listening to the conversations, going to pitching events where you're actually, you know, competing to raise money or you are even just practicing your, your pitching, you hear what the, what the VC firms are interested in. What's the cost to acquire a user? What is that user worth? How much, how much is the cost to acquire a user and what's the lifetime of a user? What's the value proposition here? that they're going to ask you those questions. And sometimes you need to be asked that question so you can go back to your computer, <laughs> Google what the hell they're asking you. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then you, you, end up start, you end up creating what they're asking for. We need you to look like this. They, you know, in the startup world, they always talk about the hockey stick. They want your growth to be the hockey stick, right? Gradual growth, or, or if you just look at the, that's viral, right? Look at COVID-19, right? That's truly the definition of going viral. You look at the curve. Literally. What were the numbers? And then it's exponential. Yeah. That they're, they're looking to see that you're on that trajectory, that there's going to be that level of absorption. So once you start looking at VCs uh, to answer that question, how do you raise money? How do you get the money? Once you start looking at them, it forces you to become, you know, a builder of a business because they want, they want your business to succeed. But they, they can identify that you're on shaky grounds. So they want your foundation to be tight. They want your team to be tight. They want there to be traction. They want the market size to be large enough. And those are the things that they're interested in. 